name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, please keep your order of worship open. Uh, We will be reciting together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9 and 10, which consist of question and answers 26 and 28. Most of you know that normally we read our scripture passage before this, but today, because we're going to be looking at a number of scripture passages, I'll just be reading those during the sermon itself. Uh, the doctrine of God's providence, which we will be considering in short order, is a, is a doctrine that's very hard to restrict to just one passage. It's something that really shows up in every page of scripture. So as you'll see, we'll be looking at a variety of texts as we move on into the sermon. So if you'd please, uh, if I'll read the question, if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 26 asks, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father for the sake of Christ his Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt they will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. Question 27 asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28 asks, How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. Well, as you know, this Catechism, which is one of our statements of faith, that is to say we believe that it's, it's not scripture, it's below scripture, it's not inspired or inerrant, but we believe it to be a faithful summary of the main doctrines of the Christian life. Think of the Bible as a forest. The catechism gives us that overview, that uh, panoramic view of the most important truths that are revealed to us in the pages of scripture. And we are in the gray section of this catechism, uh, or salvation section of this catechism. And a few weeks ago, we considered the nature of true faith. Do you guys remember what the three elements of true faith? What, what are they? Knowledge. Knowledge. Assent. 
Try, I hear whispering. <laughs> Trust. Yes. You can think of cat. Cat with a K. Knowledge, assent, trust. Those are the three elements of true faith that our catechism gives us, which do reflect the teaching of, of Scripture. And then a few weeks ago, we also considered what the content of this faith is. That is to say, what are those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in? Do you remember what the, where the catechism pointed us to? What document? The Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed. The very uh, faithful and concise summary of the basics that we need to know, we need to assent to, and we need to trust in. And so, right now we're in this section of the catechism where the catechism is explaining phrase by phrase, the Apostles' Creed, what we mean when we confess these things. And so we're currently in the context of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This exposes us to the doctrines of creation and providence. Last week, if you were with us, we considered the doctrine of creation and what we mean when we confess God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. But today we're going to be considering what God has been up to ever since he entered that seventh-day Sabbath rest. He's now in the business of sustaining, upholding, and providing for his creation, which is the doctrine of God's providence, how he cares and sustains and beholds all that he has created, including us as his creatures. And this is a doctrine I think needs to be recovered in our own day and age, in a very mechanized day that we live in. I recently was reading a, a Gallup poll this last week, and it gave a stat that I thought was quite astounding. It said 76% of Christians who attend church weekly believe that God hears our prayers and intervenes in history, which I think is a pretty astoundingly low number. 76% of Christians who attend church weekly believe that God, God hears our prayers and intervenes in, in history, which touches upon our belief in God's providence. This is a doctrine that I think we, we need to recover. God is not just creator, but he's sustainer. And God can work immediately upon creation, directly upon creation. We would describe such occurrences as miracles. God working directly upon this created order. But most of the time, God employs secondary means and causes to sustain and provide for his creation. Many of you have probably heard of the, the God of the gaps theory, which basically says that those things that no human has a natural explanation for uh, is chalked up to God. All those things that happen in this universe that there's no natural explanation for how that occurrence can happen, then we chalk that up to God's activity. But what that betrays is this subtle idea that if there is a natural explanation for it, then God must not be very much involved. <laughs> we have to realize whether God acts directly upon creation, miraculously, or if he employs secondary causes, he's just as much responsible for that activity. Think of Genesis 1. We briefly considered this last week. We saw this pattern of God using his speech to create. Over and over again we read, And let there be, and it was so. One time there was not light. And God spoke, and there was light. 
He did not use pre-existing material in his creation, his creation ex nihilo. However, we also come across some passages in Genesis 1 where God says, let the earth bring forth. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Let seeds uh, sprout up into plants. Think about that. Does it get more natural than a seed sprouting into a plant? But yet Genesis 1 says that that occurrence finds its origin in the power of God's word. So even when God uses secondary causes, which is most of the time, we can't think that God is less involved. God is involved in every occurrence. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how. Directly, miraculously, or through the use of secondary causation. And Luther oftentimes spoke of, of God hiding his smiling providence behind the face of the farmer or the baker or the milkmaid. Which means whether you buy your bread in the grocery store or God causes bread to descend from heaven, both instances would be um, evidence of God's provision. God is responsible. So I'd like us to consider then this doctrine of God's providence. God's providence. God as sustainer. God as provider. And these question and answers are some of the highlights of the Heidelberg Catechism. They're wonderful, wonderful um, question and answers. They communicate the truth of this doctrine in a very warm and helpful way that immediately draws us into this, this doctrine. It shows us that it's not just something that we need to know and assent to, but something that we can actually trust. And this is a great example of how our catechism never separates doctrine and life, doctrine and practice. This is a confession for the church, uh, for people who are not pastors and theologians, but people who need fuel to get through the week, Monday through Saturday. And so it's questions like this that are, are very helpful to commit to memory so that we can remind ourselves of this very comforting tool in the toolbox of God's truth, uh, toolbox of God's word. So God is sustainer, God is provider. I'd like us to look at three promises in particular that we are given here. Three promises in particular that we are given from God, who is the author of providence. Three promises that we are given from God, who is our sustainer and provider. The first promise we are given is that God will provide what we need, both body and soul. If you look with me at question answer 26, we read, I trust God so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for both body and soul and soul. Now God has given each one of us callings in life, vocations in life. And what this promise tells us is that he will grant us everything that we stand in need of in order to fulfill those callings faithfully. He will grant us everything that we stand in need of to fulfill those callings faithfully. And yes, there's times where God closes doors and opens up new doors. That doesn't mean that he has failed to provide in certain areas of life, but rather he's changing the direction of our life, and he's now going to provide for us in new ways so that we can fulfill that new calling. The promise is, as long as God has ordained to give breath in our lungs, he will grant us what we stand in need of to fulfill the callings that God has given us so that our neighbors may be blessed and God may be glorified. That's the promise. 
In Matthew chapter 6, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following, this is the passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he addresses anxiety and God's provision. And here he's telling his disciples, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And he points to two very common examples that stand as testimonies to God's provision for his people. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Then he moves on. He says, well, look at the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. Today they're alive. Tomorrow they're thrown in the oven. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If you so clothe the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is gone, will he not clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus is pointing to seemingly insignificant aspects of creation and showing how God, as the author of providence, cares for them, sustains them, provides for them. And, and the argument is the argument of le- the lesser to the greater. If God provides for things as seemingly insignificant as lilies, of gr- as grass, as birds, will he not provide for image bearers? And more than that, image bearers who've been redeemed and adopted into his everlasting family? The answer is yes. This is an important truth for us to, uh, to remember because in times of anxiety, we, we have the habit of focusing on those one or two threats that are causing the angst in our life. And so what we do is we have this tunnel vision. We're focusing on a sliver of our life, 1% to 2% of our life. And we're just consumed and obsessing about that small sliver of our life. And we're blind, utterly blind to all of the other evidences in our life that testify to the fact that we have a God who cares for us, who's providing for us, and who will provide for us. And so essentially what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, all right, if you're anxious, just take a time out. Reflect, step back from whatever it is that's consuming your mind and your heart and consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Don't be blind to these common and ordinary testimonies to God's providence in your life. But be mindful, be cognizant of these things. And trust me, trust me. If I provide for them, will I not provide for you? You owe you a little faith? Psalm 104 is another great psalm which speaks about God's providence and goes through all of God's creation. And then he says, these all look to you, O God, to give them their food in due season. God is the one who provides for his creation. So God's promise to us is that he will provide what we stand in need of for body and soul to fulfill the callings that he has given us for as long as he's ordained us to live on this earth. That's a promise. The second promise that we have here is that God is at work in our adversity. Now, where in question answer 26 do we see this promise? It says he will turn to good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this veil of tears. And who is sending the adversity? God. God. Something that's important, I think, to recognize. 
God sends the adversity. Question answer 27, we read that all things come from God's fatherly hand, which means not just the good things, but even the difficult things in life, the adversities in life. Which means that God is sovereign even over our suffering and the trials and tribulations that we face. Now, as one theologian has said, God stands behind good and evil asymmetrically, which means that when it comes to the good things in life, the good things that creatures produce, God is directly responsible for those things. He is the one who's working those good things in the lives of his creatures. But when it comes to evil, suffering, trials, he's not responsible for those things, but yet he is sovereign over those things. He permits those things to happen. Think of when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He wasn't the one who was actively coercing Pharaoh and producing the hardening. Rather, he was uh, you know, removing his common grace from Pharaoh's life and leaving him to his own devices. But God's sovereign, sovereign over everything, which is a comforting thing to recognize. God's sovereign over our adversity. So a lot of people say that the presence of suffering and evil in this life make God either good or almighty, but not both. Meaning, the fact that there's evil, there's suffering in this world means that God, is, God could be almighty, but he's definitely not good. Because if he was almighty and he allowed evil and suffering into this world, there's no way he could be good. Others say that the presence of suffering and evil testify to the fact that he's good, but he's not omnipotent because uh, he's just a good God. He has good desires, good intentions, but he can't really overcome the suffering and evil and, and doesn't have power or sovereignty over that. But we can confess that God is both good, he's faithful father, but he's also almighty. He's almighty God. And thus he's willing and able to take the adversity and turn that adversity into ultimate good. A good that would not be as good if he did not turn evil into blessing. You know, Augustine said that, commenting on this, he said, God knew that it pertained more to his almighty goodness, even to bring good out of evil, than not to permit evil to be. We have to believe that. We have to rest that, rest in that. The good that God creates out of evil is a greater good than if he just would have brought the good about without allowing the evil to take place first. Well, we, this touches upon what we considered this morning, doesn't it? The cross is the greatest revelation of this promise. The cross is that moment in history where God took the greatest adversity, the Son of God dying, the greatest adversity, and turned it into the greatest good. Even though we don't know how God is working all things for good in this age, we can rest, we can trust, and have no doubt that he is doing that in our life because of the revelation of the cross. If God can take the greatest adversity and turn it into ultimate good, can he not do that with lesser adversities that we face in this age? More than that, I said uh, this morning that in Romans 8, 28 and 29, we do know that God is using all things to conform us to Christ. So we at least know that much. And so uh, one author I was reading this week said that when Christ lived on this earth, he learned Christhood through his suffering, so Christ learned, or no, excuse me, Christ learned humanhood from his suffering. So he learned what it meant to be a human through his suffering. And we then learn Christhood through our suffering. Meaning, the sufferings the Lord puts in our life are the means by which we are conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. 
So if our purpose in life is just earthly comfort and, and wealth and, and prosperity and an easy life, then of course sufferings are a huge roadblock to that purpose. But if our purpose is conformity to Christ, then that changes how we view our sufferings, how we view our adversities. So really this is calling us to ask, what's our great purpose in life? So the, the second great promise is that God is at work in our adversity. It's a promise that we have from God, our provider and sustainer. Well, the third promise we have in, uh, in this Lord's Day is that every event in our life is purposeful. It's purposeful. Where do we see this in question answer 27? That everything is purposeful. Exactly. All things, even the smallest of details. A very wonderful way the catechism goes through, especially in that context, all of life. God upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, leaf and blade, raid and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, all things, come not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. And we know that according to our perspective, we use the imagery from this morning, if we have the spectacles of our own assumptions and expectations on, life seems fortuitous. Life seems random. Life seems governed by chance. It seems that way. You feel long for meaning, but it does seem that way. But that's when we view things, that's when we're viewing things according to the spectacles of our own sinful assumptions and expectations. Because when we put on the spectacles of divine revelation, we realize that everything is governed by a purposeful God. Even the smallest of details only occur because of God's permission and governance. And Jesus proves this point for us very helpfully in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from the will of your Father. Again, Jesus is taking one of the most seemingly insignificant things in creation, a sparrow, and saying even the death of a sparrow is not by chance, but by God's direct will and governance. This is, this is comforting, especially when we feel like we're the recipients of bad luck. When we are that, that small percentage of people that have a certain bad thing happen to us. We can become despairing, but here we know that our entire life, every detail of our life is governed by our almighty God and faithful Father. And based on what we just heard, he'll turn every adversity for good. It's a very comforting promise. Every event in our life is purposeful. <coughs> so those are the three promises that the catechism brings out from uh, for us from scripture and again those are three promises that you can find worked out all throughout scripture. God's providence. You can't really understand scripture apart from God's providence. He is the mover of history. 
But now the Catechism, again, very helpfully applies this doctrine for us. What should our response be? What should our response be? And according to question answer 26, what, is, what should be our response to this doctrine of God's providence? Yes, exactly. Trust. Which makes sense based on the context of this catechism. It's going through the content of faith, those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in. So it makes sense that the first application of this doctrine would be for us just to trust it, rest in it. I don't know about you, but when you look at the three elements of faith, the doctrine of God's providence, is, it's pretty easy to know what it is, okay, articulate it, maybe assent that it's true in theory, but to actually trust it, rest in it when you seem to be walking through a veil of tears that's hard I think that's why the catechism specifically addresses the trust element of true faith the knowledge, the ascent that's, that's the easy part the trusting, resting throwing yourself upon this, this doctrine, that's, that's the hard part Now, what's the reason, in question answer 26, what's the reason we can trust God so much and, and have no doubt? Because he's able. He's able. Why is he able? He's almighty. What else, why, why else can we trust God? Yeah, he's able as almighty God and willing as faithful father. I love that turn of phrase. We can trust him because as almighty God, he is able to do all things, but as willing father, as faithful father, he's willing to do all things for us. That's comforting. That's why we can trust. He's both almighty and good. That's the God in whom we trust. Now, from this foundation of trust, question answer 28 then, then uh, applies for us how we can respond well in every season of our life. So from this foundation of trust, question answer 26 tells us how we can respond well in every single season of our life. So according to question answer 28, the doctrine of God's providence allows us to respond during times of, during times of adversity with patience. Right, patience. Here I think of Job, Job chapter 1. Uh, he says after he experienced affliction, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What allowed Job to be able to be patient at that time of his adversity? It was recognition of who God is. God's creator and sustainer. And that's the only way we'll be able to be patient in adversity is falling back on those three promises. That God provides all that we stand in need of. God is at work in our adversity. And God is making sure that everything that happens in life is purposeful. He's sovereign over it all. That's what allows us to be patient. Well, what should our response be during times of prosperity? Thankfulness. Gratitude. And as we all know, times of prosperity present their own unique temptations. 
so easy for us to be so diligent in prayer when we have that need. And we see God provides, and it's so quickly, we so quickly become lax in our thanksgiving. It's so easy for us to forget the font of every good and perfect gift. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. Times of prosperity, but even in times of adversity as well. We'd be diligent, watchful, he says elsewhere in Thanksgiving. The soldier standing on duty, watchful in it. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.4, Paul is addressing a a certain sect that the Christian church was dealing with who were, uh, were promoting a certain form of asceticism restricting marriage, certain foods, and Paul says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We're to be a grateful people. People who are watchful in thanksgiving. Well, what about the future? What does the doctrine of God's providence provide for us as we look out into the future? Confidence. 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 Now, when we look into the future, most of us, if we dwell there too long, can grow quite anxious. And in many ways, our anxiety comes from the fact that we want to be in the control seat of our life, but we realize that we can't control everything in our life, and thus the anxiety. And when we look into the future, we see much, much that's completely out of our control, and thus we become very unconfident and anxious. So catechism says that we can be confident, not because of our power or ability to govern our life, but because we know that God is in control. We know that God is in control, and he's promised to provide for us. That's what makes us confident. And that's what we are to rest in. Psalm 112, verse 7, the psalmist talks about this righteous man. He says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. I love that verse. His heart is not afraid of bad news. He's talking about the future. Not afraid of, of receiving bad news because his heart is firm and trusting in the Lord. Only knowledge of God's providence can give us that firm heart, that trust in the Lord. Well, the Christian faith gives us many tools, especially when we are going through difficult seasons of life. And I would say it gives us much more uh, resources and tools than any other worldview, whether it be other religions, whether it be um, this dominant secular mindset. Christianity has the most to offer a suffering soul. And I would say that the doctrine of God's providence is one of the best tools in that toolbox that Christianity gives us. And so we, you and I, were called in response to this doctrine to trust to trust our almighty God and faithful Father, and from that foundation of trust, to be patient, to be thankful, and to be confident because of who our God is. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that you are God, uh, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That you not only brought all things into existence, but you continue.